0: Thank you for listening. This is Israel Rebounds, a podcast joining listeners in Nebraska and other places to Israel, exploring the ties that bind us through culture, identity, and current events. I'm Liz Feldstern in Jerusalem, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alan Podash in California. Alan, how are you today?
1: Liz, I'm great. It's always a pleasure to see you and to talk about issues that are of interest to us um, that have taken place over the week. Um, I just want to start by asking a question. I know that we talked last week about the uh, the need for elections in November and that there are so many parties in Israel. They're starting to campaign and to pick their uh, people. What what are you seeing in Israel and, and how does that process work? Yeah,
0: so as we talked about last week, the. Israel is still, even though it seems unthinkable with the election just a couple months away, is still in the process of figuring out what are the parties going to be that are going to be running in this election. And part of that process actually is announcing who are the members of each party. And something interesting about that is that the list of party members, I mean, there can be many hundreds of members of a party, but prior to formally beginning their campaign ahead of an election cycle, each party needs to announce the 120 first seats in their party. Why 120? Because in the really non-existent chance that every single person in Israel voted for the same party, and therefore all of the seats in the Knesset went to that party, you need to know before the election who would those 120 people be. So even though it has no chance of happening, every party announces their are 120 people, knowing full well that somewhere between zero, if they don't Get enough votes and cross the threshold, or four, that's the minimum number, uh, members of their party will wind up being in the Knesset, or five, or six, or seven, or, or 10 or 15, but certainly nowhere near 120. So, right now, that's what the parties are finalizing. As part of this process of parties merging and rethinking, um, they're also building those lists so that they can officially begin their campaign.
1: I find that very aspirational and somewhat <laughs> somewhat overly optimistic for uh, a party in Israel to think that they have the ability to gain 120 seats. I, it's almost comical. I, I mean, how is it treated uh, in Israel?
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly I don't think anybody whose number, you know, 105 on any party's list is thinking that there's any chance that they're going to be a member of the next Knesset. But on the other hand, I guess it would be hard to figure out where does one make the cutoff, right? If you're not going to assign all 120 seats, well, do you stop at 10, 20, 50s, you know, so you might as well just go all the way to 120. And, you know, I guess it's just a formality for somebody to be able to say, you know, yes, I'm number 95 on the Likud party list. They'll never be a member of asset, but they can say you know, that that's their number. um I don't know if it's aspirational as much as being sort of, you know, pedantic and legally minded that just in case we're going to be ready that there's no questions should this you know statistically impossible situation arise.
1: So let me ask you a technical question then. So for example, I think in the last election, Um, Likud, I think maybe had 27 or 28 seats. So one through 28 would automatically get a spot in the Knesset. Um,
0: yes, that's exactly right. And, you know, along with that, those party members high up on the list usually know also how many ministerial seats they will get. So. You know, if somebody is in position one or two or three, they have a fairly high likelihood of also not only making it into the Knesset, but also getting a seat as a minister. And people who are further down the list, while they might wind up in the Knesset, they know that they're not going to be a minister. So all of that sort of figuring and and politicking, I guess, goes into the process of each party building internally their list and deciding you know who are in those top seats um and i'm sure there's a, a well it's not about getting into the knesset i'm sure there's a certain level of you know process and uh respect that goes into determining the order even further down the list right
1: so i'm i'm looking at um right now 17 members uh the current prime minister, Yair y- y- Lapid, is one of those seventeen. Um, is he the most? Was he the most senior person that then took the leadership for Yeshatid, which gave him the opportunity to become prime minister? Is that how that works?
0: Correct. The person who is in the number one spot of a party is the person who the um president of Israel will turn to after the election and charge them, right, with forming a coalition, right? If we think back to just over a year ago, that's how it works, right? The president says, okay, you number one member of such and such party who got the most seats, or could be potentially at the president's discretion, didn't get the most seats, but for some other reason, the president believes is most likely to be able to to form a coalition, to get 61 members of Knesset to say, yes, we are willing to to sit with you in your voting bloc. And then that process begins. So yes, the, the number one seat is the person who will be asked to do that. And in all likelihood, that person will be prime minister. But as we saw, again, in the last election cycle, right, Two parties decided to come together and share that role of prime minister. And so they came up with their agreement of one going first and one going second, and 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 the ministerial roles also play a part in those um wheelings and dealings.
1: Um I, I'm looking at the the list, the current list, which I'm not sure how current it is, but it's dated um it's either April or June of 21. <laughs> I guess it's June of 21, because that's when they took office. Um, I don't really recognize most of the people on this list. Um,
0: Further down the list, you mean? Yeah.
1: yeah. So it's interesting. Yeah. I, yeah you know, I, I think it's really kind of cool. The reason I, I, I bring it up today is because I, I was following some news this week where Mirav Mechaeli was um, trying to strengthen the Labour Party. Which currently had seven seats, and I know that she was looking at other ways of strengthening the seat. You know, Labor used to be the strongest party and always vied for uh, power from Likud. But over the years, the party has changed quite a bit, and she's kind of being credited for bringing Labor back into the mainstream. So again, it's something for us to to pay attention to over the course of the next several months. Um, Again, I find the process in Israel to be very very interesting because it changes up minute by minute and there are so many characters that are involved and so much negotiation and wheeling and dealing that it really demonstrates the the power of a democratic process a parliamentary democratic process that is very different to that of what we have in the United States.
0: Yeah, it's definitely interesting. I mean, I often think wow, I you know, I don't have the the mindset for this it's also a little bit how i feel about chess like it's thinking more steps ahead than my brain can can handle at once right if we go this way with the party then people will want to join here and therefore the votes will go this way like it's so complicated um but somebody understands it i guess and there are people you know making those decisions and calculations and figuring out what they think is their best strategy for these coming elections, which is why we have all of these phenomena of two parties joining together or party splitting um, or or what really is a radical change, like you mentioned, in labor over a period of not so many years, going from being what had consistently been the largest or second largest party in all of Israel's elections to barely passing the threshold and sitting in the Knesset at all, which is wild um, when you think about it, right? I mean, can you imagine if one of the major parties in the U.S. became a teeny tiny party and some other constellation of, of new parties, you know, became more mainstream? It's almost unthinkable. And it was, you know, not quite in the way the two-party system is entrenched in the U.S., but it wasn't far off from that in Israel, you know, just fifteen years ago. So it's pretty, it's yeah. pretty significant.
1: So it's something that we will pay close attention to because I'm I'm very interested in in following and learning more about it. And it is something that um, I think you also share some interest in. My question, though, Liz, I don't know if you can answer it, but between now and November. Can a new party be created?
0: Absolutely. A new party can still be created. Uh, Most likely that that will happen, but it won't be, you know, some it won't be people that nobody's ever heard of stepping onto the political stage. It will be two existing parties deciding to run together under a new name. Sometimes parties decide to do that and just keep both of their former names and consider themselves a joint party, but that means that they're going to come up with one list of 120 spots that consists of people from both parties, right? So they now need to take what were two lists of 120 people and and combine them and agree on now who's in spot one and two and three and four, right? And all so that's what that's what it really means when you have these two parties come together. Um, so, and that will likely happen between now and November.
1: That'll be interesting to watch. Yeah. Thank you for that explanation. That was really very helpful for me and hopefully for those who who are listening. Um, I also want to just kind of ask you a, a question, a personal question, regardless of, of the political system that we're talking about. It's, it's a lot about personalities. It's about ideas. It's about uh, bringing people together, I noticed in the Times of Israel this week that there was an article about a a new French supermarket chain coming to Israel. I'm intrigued. You know, we're talking about the politics. Uh, are there strong French olim that are active in in politics that would be driving the business part of of Israel?
0: So there are absolutely many french immigrants in israel in fact the number of immigrants people making aliyah from france has gone up and up and up over the past mm, 15 years um so to the point that you know now uh, in in other parts of israel but particularly in jerusalem the french olim have very strong ties to Jerusalem, you will find French neighborhoods and French synagogues and French markets. Um, how about and French e- hills? French hill? French no, hill is the... still there. It's not particularly French, but yes, French hill is still in Jerusalem.
1: That was more a, a play on, on words.
0: Yes, you know, yes. You're, talking about,
1: you're talking about French businesses, French... Supermarkets, what about French hills?
0: Yeah, uh, French bakeries. French bakeries. Um, and, and, you know, and just hearing French as the, I guess, pun intended, but, you know, lingua franca, I mean, you hear French quite a bit in Jerusalem. Um, and so, you know, the fact that a French-owned supermarket chain would be able to open in in Israel is not super surprising. Um, the yeah, it's a it's a large community. It's quite significant.
1: The article also shares an opinion by Prime Minister Lapid that it'll help uh, reduce the cost of living in Israel. So I take it these are discount supermarkets.
0: So I don't know too much about this specific um, chain, right? Since it doesn't quite exist yet, but um, the in, the whole topic actually of supermarket chains and 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 discount change and and the cost of of living in Israel is a really interesting topic. I mean, if you think back a number of years, right? There were significant protests. In Israel, of people saying that the cost of basic goods, bread, milk, eggs, were just untenable. Um, and interestingly, I—I I mean, you can tell me if you can think of a parallel or have seen something like this in the U.S. But one of the ways that supermarkets and supermarket chains often advertise themselves in Israel is by that they have the I am—I don't know how I would say in English—the cheapest basket of goods in Israel, meaning that for you know the most basic items, if you were to walk into that store and buy a liter of milk and a dozen eggs and five cucumbers and five tomatoes and flour and rice, right? That there's there's a a set basket that you can then compare from supermarket to supermarket. And that concept is, I think, is very different. I mean, I can't think of people. I mean, people will talk about, you know, the cost of a gallon of milk going up in the States or the cost of a dozen eggs going up. But I don't know too many supermarkets that would run their whole public campaign on saying, you know, for your most basic everyday items, we're the cheapest. And here, that's very common.
1: So they, um, in the grocery store industry, which I'm not that familiar with other than hearing and having conversations with several of our um, former donors in Omaha who own grocery stores, it's called a lost leader. So they would have a product that will be um, very cheap, inexpensive, uh, that brings you into the store, and then they help that you will buy more expensive items. so Uh so, you know just like you're describing a basket of things they don't have a basket of things they might um, but they would have products that are inexpensive or less than at other places to draw you into the store in order for you then to buy more expensive things while you're in the store so cereal uh, has been one of those things where you know the most expensive cereals are literally at eye level for kids Uh so the kids can go in there and grab it where the more inexpensive, or the inexpensive ones are higher up on the shelves. But the idea of of pricing for grocery stores is very strategic in the states, and it sounds like it's more geared towards the needs of people in Israel.
0: Uh, it is. I do think that it is geared towards the needs of the weaker members of society, um, which is, you know, says something about Israel that that population is not forgotten about when it comes to to supermarkets of course we have higher end chains and you know places where cost is not the number one thing that people are looking for they're looking for organic they're looking for an experience they're looking for you know boutique whatever those places certainly exist but the the norm really is supermarkets that cater to people who are looking for the least expensive way to buy the most basic staples, pasta, flour, bread.
1: Almost, I don't know. And those things used to be heavily subsidized.
0: There are still certain items that are subsidized and certain prices which are set you know nationally across the board and you cannot charge more. So a liter of regular milk costs what it costs and a supermarket cannot decide to charge more. A loaf of the most simple bread has a specific price, and the supermarket cannot charge more for that bread. They can sell many other breads that at whatever prices they want, but if they, I don't know if they have to carry the simple bread. If they carry the simple bread, they have to carry it at the, you know, um, approved price. So yes, all of those, um, you know, social welfare tools. Still exists.
1: So, can I ask you a personal question? Mm-hmm. How, how do you do your shopping, your grocery I, shopping?
0: <laughs> um. So, I am not a fan of the in-store grocery shopping experience in Israel, and so even before COVID, I was very, very happy when Israel figured itself out and there was a way to pretty conveniently order groceries online. And so I only order groceries online for my big grocery shopping, right? So once a week, I do my regular order online and the groceries are delivered to my door. But to fill in, you know, you run out of something, you realize you want to make something that you don't have the ingredients for. The kids are all of a sudden supposed to bring 47 hard-boiled eggs to school. Um, And so for, for all of those needs, we have the makolet. We have the corner store, which is... Like a small supermarket, I mean, ours is very well stocked. We actually have two that are located, one directly across the street from the other, which is a whole nother interesting story of competition and rivalry, I think, between the two. Um, But both are are fairly large and well stocked ones. They include, you know, fresh produce. They have... um, a significant frozen section. They have, you know, like all corner stores. They also lean heavy on the alcohol and cigarettes section, right? That's something that people tend to want to buy late at night or at a corner store like this. But they really have everything.
1: Do they cater to the to the um, culture or the identity of the neighborhood?
0: I'm sure they do. Yes, they vary from from neighborhood to neighborhood, um, and yeah, I mean maybe that's why ours do tend to have a bigger range of offerings because you know it's a pretty comfortable slash affluent neighborhood. I um, and so you know, the the corner store has realized. That somebody may come in asking for some, you know, sort of esoteric ingredient. Do you carry miso? Do you carry cream of tartar? Do, you know, they're used to that, so they do. They have everything because, you know, uh spoiled Americans, not only Americans, but maybe Americans by the life, may come in looking for some unusual ingredient, whereas I've certainly been in plenty of corner stores in other parts of the city that, do not carry any of those unusual items, they just have the basics.
1: So they do try to cater to the patrons of the neighborhood.
0: Yeah, that would be interesting to sort of say, okay, what must we be buying a lot of that they have a lot of in this market?
1: Well, maybe maybe that could be one of our conversations is to interview. We have a
0: lot of Ben and Jerry's at ours. I think we have a lot of people buying Ben and Jerry's in the neighborhood.
1: Is your neighborhood heavily American?
0: Our neighborhood is heavily American. I mean, definitely not the majority, but a significant minority. Um, yes, there are a lot of Americans. There are also more and more French speakers. Um, but yes, definitely a lot, a lot of American and, and Anglos of every sort, right? South Africans, Australians, British, all of those no. types. We're all here.
1: <laughs> Good. No, I just remember the Makolot that was on Yeshua ben Nun when Amy and I lived there. Just It was very charming and it was a very uh, comfortable place to get a few things, as you described, that you might need on a, on a daily basis. Uh, but there was not... Um, ordering online when we were living there
0: mm-hmm. yeah well i don't know if you remember the what i i imagine maybe already then existed but on emicor faim just close to yoshua ben noon the super hamoshava do you remember that supermarket yes well you're gonna have to go see it because it has been so wildly renovated and so if you want to talk catering to americans woo that is like so fancy now and they have everything they've always been pretty overpriced um, and they still are but uh but that's a lovely supermarket okay. I don't know how it got so big like it's in the same location it always was but you step inside and somehow it's like four times the size I don't know they've found like a black hole or something inside <laughs> I don't know how they did it but it's massive I was in there for the first time in years the other day and I couldn't believe how big it was there's just aisles and aisles of things
1: well i definitely will check it out when i'm back Um, anything else that uh is of interest to talk about
0: uh well we'll definitely keep doing our grocery shopping here and keep an eye on what's going on in politics um i think those are uh, enough to keep us busy for the week thank you This has been a podcast of Israel Rebound. Thanks for listening.